you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. I went out to the hazelwood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread and when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout when I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair, who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. You are listening to the song of Wandering Angus by Yates. In today's episode, we have Leo Joskoist and we will be talking with him about his ideas of shapes and how he is really shaping Mikai society as the home for whoever is doing medical imaging research, no matter which part of the world they are from. And also his idea about shapes and why we really need to bring the shapes into our deep learning frameworks to make them more robust and usable in a clinical practice. It's a wonderful sunny day here in Darmstadt, Germany. We are here to record the third season of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. We have been doing quite a lot of episodes and different aspects of bringing AI into healthcare. And today we will also be very, very stoked to hear more about this. We are recording this podcast on the week before Mikai. And that's also a wonderful thing because today we have with us the president of Mikai Society, Professor Leo Joskoist is a professor from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Israel. He has been involved in the field for quite some time. 
and he's fellow of multiple societies such as Mikhai, IEEE, and he's also a pioneer of the field computer-assisted intervention, which from now on, when we start talking, we'll probably say Kai in short, instead of going into the full name. So yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you here, Professor Joskoist. Thank you very much, Anirban. Thank you very much, Henry. Greetings to everybody from Jerusalem in also a very sunny day. Thank you also for organizing the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I have listened with great interest to some of the previous ones and certainly have learned quite a lot about some of my colleagues, even those that I know well. So thank you for the effort and it's a pleasure for me to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you us uh, here today. I'm really looking forward to today's session. Yeah, let us just start with the very first question of the session today, mainly because this is our tradition in our AI Ready Healthcare podcast. So how did you become the researcher that you currently are and especially the president of Mikai Society? Thank you very much. I will give you some of the highlights. In uh, full honesty, I never planned to become or thought I would ever reach such a position. I uh, originally grew up in Mexico City, and uh, at the end of my studies, I came to Israel to the Technion. I was very interested about computers. It was the beginnings of computer science in the late 70s, and I always knew that I wanted to study engineering. I knew I didn't want to do medicine or law. It was very clear to me that from the different choices, it was everything except medicine and law. Of course, law is still there, but not medicine. And then I studied, uh, I got a very, very good education at the Technion in Haifa here, and then continued my studies at uh, NYU in New York in the US, where I did my PhD in computer science at the Courant Institute. And it was the late 80s when AI, the old-fashioned AI, the rule-based AI, was very much in vogue. I was very much intrigued by it, the logic, the rules. It was really fascinating. And also the association with geometry and the way of thinking about that. So this was really a very good time and interesting for me. So I did research in AI and geometry on mechanical devices, actually things that had to do with that. And then a researcher from uh, IBM Research, Dr. Sanjay Adamki, came by one day and uh, started talking about different ways that AI could be used. When I finished my PhD, I joined the IBM Research Center, which was a very prestigious place at the time. It still is, but it was larger and very influential, the large labs in the late 80s. And there I carried and did research in AI and geometric reasoning. But at a certain one day, Ross Taylor, who is uh, one of the fathers of medical robotics, came by and says, are you the guy who knows about geometry and logic? And said, yes, well, I have a problem for you. We have these hip implants. I didn't know what the hip implant was at the time. We need to know if it's going to fit in there or not in the bone of a person. I said, well, this is the classic peg and hole problem in robotics, right? You have a peg and you have a hole and you want to know if you can insert the peg inside the hole, of course, given that the shape of the peg and the hole are not perfect. Uh, and Sende, we developed together an algorithm for solving the peg and hole problem. 
not only for testing if an implant was insertable, but because at the time, and some of the implants were also curved, or custom implants. And then we thought that there were, could be a way to design those implants, because at the time, the trend was that hip implants should not be cemented, but they should be press fit. And for that, there was a development of Robodoc, the first medical surgical robot in orthopedics. And this is how I got into this field, and I was fascinated ever since. I forgot about my vow not to study medicine, and went into the, the operating rooms, and I just saw that surgery was an absolutely fascinating field, very, very handcraft. So probably one of the last handcrafts in the late 20th century. That's the, the beginnings. And then to summarize quickly, I got into the field and a few years later, I came here to the Hebrew University and started the TASNIP lab, computer-aided surgery and medical image processing, in which I contacted a number of very open-minded surgeons in uh, the Hadassah Hospital, the Tel Aviv Hospital, and then we started to working together in this very niche idea, niche field, which raised quite a number of eyebrows. We, we just went through it, and then, as they say, the rest of his history. I was able to thrive thanks to excellent collaborations. The stress in interdisciplinarity, going to the R, seeing what the surgeons do, and then later into the field of radiology with the same approach. First, go and spend time at the hospital. Nowadays, it's an obvious statement, but it's never obvious to repeat it again and again. Go and see what they're doing. If you really want to help clinicians do something for their patients, first understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then you can do a change. Thank you so much. In one short summary, you pointed so many valuable things that the more you repeat, the more it remains. It's never enough. You should just keep on repeating it because especially in the modern time when with all the data sets becoming available, there is a significant knack to saying, okay, we develop AI algorithms. Why do we care about the doctors? We have our algorithms, our networks, our Python scripts, and we have a Mikai paper, we are done. So I think even now it's more important, more relevant. So I guess before we go into the technical question, I have a very, like, I was very curious because you said you grew up in Mexico City, then you came to Israel, you went to U.S. and came back to Israel again. So how many languages do you speak, Leo? I, in fact, speak five languages because the additional twist is that when in Mexico, I went to a private school, which was a French private school based on the French system. So I did my studies in French. Then I, my native tongue is Spanish. And then I uh, English you learn uh, because that's the language. And then when I came here to Israel, it was hard to learn Hebrew. And during that time, I also learned some Italian, which was easy because French and Spanish are close by. And that's how I can say I speak those languages and try to fake the others with not much success. Wow, that's really fascinating. Five different languages. I don't know how many other scientists of modern time can claim that. That's really a wonderful thing to know. 
So I guess coming back to the question that if you are really working in CHI, computer-assisted surgery, image-guided surgery, you immediately understand that if you are not doing everything close to the surgeon, you are not really making much progress. Sure, you can do some surgical data science kind of research in the modern time, but majority has to be with the surgeon, understand the process first, as you said. Versus radiology, more traditionally, I would say it was probably also the process first, but now it is also possible to get the data in and then probably the diagnosis out. But like the more and more we are realizing that's not really going to be helpful. Like imaging diagnosis out is not going to lead to a better clinical outcome for the patient. So when you were seeing this change, what was really your initial reactions and how did that match your over the last five years? Well, I'd like to broaden a little bit this perspective and basically say that if you're doing transitional, translational science, you have to basically know your customer, quote unquote. So it's not something which is unique to the field of MIC and CHI, medical image computer and computer-aided interventions, but it's also true of engineering. Think of a car that you design, and if it's not designed with the user in mind, you can have the greatest engine, but it's still not there. So we're not the only ones. It's very well known, this phenomenon of being close to the user, as opposed to more theoretical research, which you can ignore the user and then find out, which is also fine, by the way. I mean, there's room for everybody in this view of the type of research. So it's not unique to our field. Even if the other thing that we understand in our field is that in most cases, you will not be able to deploy a system yourself. You build a prototype in the best cases, you test it, in the best cases of cadavers, you do a small trial with some approvals, but eventually it's going to have to be a company that's going to carry your product. I think this is still true today. So we are already handicapped, if you wish, by the fact that the best you can hope for is to develop a prototype. Uh, that's what you can do in the framework of a university or a research institution. You can then run and have a startup but of course, uh, you know that the chances of that succeeding are very low and you require different type of skills. So even knowing those things, you have to pick the right problems or at least the right focus to the problems that you choose. There are hundreds and perhaps thousands of different specific problems that clinicians will tell you, I need A, I need B, I need C, especially nowadays because Things are becoming automated. The clinicians see what they can do with automated things. So this initial resistance to automation or advice is gone. I mean, this is certainly a great advance. The first time I went to an OR here in Israel, things got a little bit complicated. And the first thing they did is to throw me out of the OR. They said, why is, what is this guy doing here? Get out. We don't want him to see what's going on. Now, this is gone. Nowadays, they look after you, after us, people that do the technical things, because there is this understanding. But on the other hand, you still know that you will not be able really to you yourself, see your system, help somebody directly. You will help a long process. So it's more of a marathon running in the sense that there are no 100-meter sprints in this field, at least not that I know of. 
And it requires a certain character and a certain type of endurance to do that. But the important thing is to pick the problems appropriately, especially if you're in a country or work in a place in which there are limited resources. I mean, Israel is a small country and the, the kind of funding that you can find are limited by both European and US fields. So what do you do? You choose very carefully the problems you work on. You choose it so that you can get the data. You don't require supercomputers or whatever is at the time. You don't require million dollar robots. You have to really focus your research in a way that you can also carry your research and not go around complaining that you're not going to get the funds. So this is how I would see this perspective. Maybe thinking about the customer, like the surgeon in particular, I think in previous episodes, we sometimes uh, occasionally discussed the Jeff Hinton anecdote about radiologists being replaced by artificial intelligence at some point. What would you think, like in the next 30, 40, 50 years, how would that kind of statement translate to computer-assisted interventions? Do surgeons also have to fear to be replaced by machines? Okay, well, let me offer you a couple of uh, comments on that. The first one is that when we talk about customers, in fact, we have several customers. The surgeon or the clinician is one customer, and then the patient is the ultimate customer because you're helping somebody help somebody. But even within the clinicians, you have several. If you have a tumor board, for example, there is the oncologist and there is the radiologist. That's two different customers. They think differently. They require different things. They have to pull these things. And then, of course, you have, if you want to do a company, it's a different story. So we have, in fact, several customers, quote, unquote. Okay, so that's the first remark. The second remark is that being a prophet is not a very good profession, certainly in those times. I mean, I come from a place where there are many prophets. I didn't make the statistics, but I don't know how many of them were wrong. Of course, we only remember those who were right. So I think that... This question was somewhat very relevant and worrisome, and I was asked about five years ago, radiologists with the big hype about machines doing this and that is very similar to what we've already seen in the past. I heard this story also in the 80s with the financial expert systems that would do that. And of course, nobody remembers those profits, right? So at the risk of being one that is not remembered, I would say that The clinicians, it will certainly be an essential tool. The replacement story is really more of a side issue, I think, because by the time that happens, there are many things that cannot or we do not know how to automate, but it's going to be, in most cases, progressive and in a very, very few cases, disruptive. Industry and people like to always talk about disruptive technologies. We've seen in these things. But there's nothing wrong if things are not disruptive in healthcare, you know? And it's, in fact, built not to be disruptive. Think about the FDA, the regulatory processes. I mean, it's good they're there because one thing is to put an app and let people figure out whether it works or not. Another thing is to put out a system or a drug and see if it works or not. I mean, we don't do that. So by nature, things have to be more progressive. People in industry and investors always like to think about disruptive technologies, 
And that's perfectly fine. But if it's not disruptive, it's also perfectly fine. Because most of the things that happen nowadays are not disruptive. They're progressive and require the effort of a large groups of people that are not necessarily associated. We always like to think about one person, the inventor, the genius. But what about all the other groups that made that happen? I mean, this is as important as the genius or the original inventor. So this is how I see things happening and evolving in a way which are not necessarily replaced, but actually optimize the workflow, because this is the ultimate goal. If the optimization leads to automation of some of the aspects, that's good and fine. But the ultimate goal is the optimization of the healthcare and the outcomes to the patient. I guess when we are also talking about uh, AI replacing healthcare professionals, one interesting aspect is when technical people who are not working close to clinicians, they don't realize the, the patient-physician relationship. That's something that's as important as whatever technology we are bringing in into making things efficient because this is a very complex decision-making system where based on someone's suggestion, you will make life-altering, sometimes life-ending decisions, right? So that's a very complicated human thing. So basically, I guess to follow up, what you are suggesting is that maybe if the prophets were more hands-on, would they have a different viewpoint? Well, from the view of that, uh, probably prophets will be better off uh, working on things happen rather than making predictions. But of course, it's not for me to uh, comment on professions that uh, I don't plan to pursue. In any case, I think that the aspect of the relationship is no doubt important. We have seen reports of cases in which certain companies, organizations have put some system that does some automatic detection or automatic diagnosis, and then uh, patients take very serious bad actions based on whatever they see. You see that even happening commonly. You go to the doctor or you get uh, your results from an MRI or CT, which comes with an interpretation, which is meant for the physician. You read the interpretation and the first thing is you go and Google the medical condition and you look at the terrible things that can happen to you and then you can start taking a very, very bad downturn on things. And this is why you need to go to the doctor who knows how to read and interpret and put these things into context. So yes, there are those risks. It's not like automating banking or automating other decisions, which can be automated and probably are you're better off by having an automatic system doing that. So this is why the, the context is more in the optimization of the entire workflow and how do you let them do a better job. And of course, figuring out what is the best man-machine division of labor and also what is the cooperation that has to go on. And this is an ongoing target that we probably evolves in a progressive way and not in a disruptive way. That's a very good point, yes. Actually, I was wondering about when we are trying to work towards more automatization or more intelligent systems, we are usually doing the research on the university level. So I was wondering how to actually deal with the constraint 
research environment that we have at the university and how to translate it to the actual clinical workflows. How do you usually tackle this kind of problem or do you have any advice for people who are trying to achieve this? Yes, I think, first of all, to be more humble about it. You realize that unlike your colleague next door who's going to put the vision, the face recognition system in the market in two years and is going to be able to have a startup and really a huge disruptive exit, this is not going to, most, most likely, not going to happen to you if you work in this field, simply because this is not the ways are done in medicine, as we have discussed. The other point is, if you take your advice and work closely with the clinicians, you pick the problems. Because, you know, when you're solving a problem, when you tell PhD students to go, 50% of the problem, a good part of it is choosing the right problem, formulating the problem in the right way, and then finding the solution. There are problems that are interesting, not so much because of the solution they provide, but also the way they're formulated, an innovative way of formulating, a new way of looking at things, paths that are open by formulating problems or looking at aspects that others have not looked at. So that exploration which is difficult and is very hard to sort of give advice on how do you explore, how much freedom you give yourself or your students, the freedom to explore a little bit, and then also formulate things that are well known and you have the technical skills to solve them. So you probably want some, a basket like in investment, you have uh, to have risky stocks and then you have secure stocks and you have other things. And I would, my approach is basically to always have something in that basket. Things that I know that are going to work is just a matter of throwing a bit more math or better algorithms or optimization, which are tools that we're familiar with and we know. And also risk things that are risky in the sense that comes a physician and tells you, oh, I need something to do X, Y, Z. Okay, let's think why do you need to do it and try to explore and then, of course, this might not work for many reasons, the data, the time, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a balance that you can afford at a certain point in your career and certainly at the university, because at the university, the labs don't, at least in public universities or public universities where we have freedom uh, and tenure, you don't go bankrupt. I can be a startup, I can have many ideas, but I'm not going to go bankrupt. I mean, I'm going to keep my job, I'm going to keep my salary, I'm not going to have to mortgage my house. And in the worst case, I'll have to scrap for scholarship money for my students, or they will do something else. So this is a way to do that. Of course, this is very different from country to country. Uh, this doesn't work. I don't know if this framework would work in the US. The European Union has different ways of funding no doubt in China has a completely different system. It has to be very country and system specific because again, it's an optimization problem that you're facing. All right. That makes total sense. I guess, especially for the new PIs, this is even more true what you suggested that keeping something in every basket and then an optimization. So I guess if we are talking 
now from the more general aspects to the technical parts. So one of the things that you alluded right up front is that you were always interested in geometry and how you can approach application problems where there is a like hint of geometry. Now, this is something that I, of course, I was not aware of, but what we were also looking at is basically there is a general interest in bringing back the geometric constraints into the modern deep learning-based segmentation approaches. And especially in CHI, where it's not just enough to say I have dice 0.2 better than the other dice, so let's write one more Mikai paper. But really, you have to have those shapes which the surgeon will say, and you can't really fake surgeons with a shape that has a different topology or some weird stuff. This is really very relevant. So we have been working on this problem, and we have also written a shape paper about shape constraints in deep learning segmentation. And there we saw that you have also been working in parallel on these problems, and you have also published a paper in IEEE uh, Transactions on Medical Imaging, if I remember correctly. So maybe if you can tell us a little bit about the general idea of why you thought it would be important in your case and like some specific of the technology itself. Sure. I'll start with a, a general statement that in science, unlike in life, or especially these days, you're allowed to have several scientific mistresses. You can love geometry, you can love segmentation, you can love registration, you can love mechanical engineering, and that's perfectly fine because nobody's going to get back at you and tell you you have too many mistresses or you're ignoring one mistress because of the other. As I related to you, I got into this field because of the heap implants and the design of the heap implants. And this is a very mechanical engineering. In fact, I almost studied mechanical engineering because I was not accepted for the first time in computer science because the standards were too high. So I had to take a second exam. So I was very close to become a mechanical engineer. But this has to do more with the fact that I like practical things and sort of tangible things. And Geometry is one of the ways to make reality tangible in a formal way. Of course, there's physics and others, but one of these aspects is geometry. And geometry allows you to describe very real, concrete situations in a way that is amenable to computing. And this is what I found attractive. As I said, it's a matter of taste and choice and having bringing sometimes even two mistresses together, and that's fine. Never try to do it in real life, of course, but uh, this does work here. So specifically, because the way this was formulated and the ways that uh, you can have rules and constraints and there is these wonderful mathematical tools that allow you to manipulate and do many things with shapes and geometry, and there is a long and beautiful tradition in mechanical engineering and applied mathematics about those, it's a matter of importing some of those ideas to our field, right? And this is what I found extremely appealing. The idea that you can do a CAD model of the bone, which sounds trivial nowadays. I mean, I can tell you that when I first saw a CAD model of the bone, I was blown away because I said, wow. I mean, this is not a part you're designing. You're doing reverse engineering. Nature has designed it, and now you're basically modeling it. So 
how do we use this reverse engineering process? Because you don't have to design things. Now you have to reverse engineer them to create a segmentation and so on. And this is how I view this fact that you can basically isolate elements of whatever problem, be it surgical or planning, and bring them into the planning. Because after all, in the flow of the surgery optimization, you do both pre- and post-operative planning. And in many cases, especially orthopedics, there's a lot of geometry involved. I mean, carpenters, surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, rely on geometry and measurements. And this is something which is very familiar to me. So this is how I see this connection. I think you also did work on intraoperative imaging, right? Uh, using geometrical methods. Exactly. So the idea, you know, we are dating back at the times of model-based approaches in which you have to come up with the rules. I mean, you have to come up with the features that are relevant And you have to come up with the rules or formulas that are relevant. And geometry offers you a lot there. Again, because in the field of orthopedics, where I did most of my earlier work, things are rigid and don't change. And you have a lot of things that can be used that way. And then you can incorporate some of the computer vision work that works with 2D images. I saw that as a natural combination of this back in the 90s. And in the modern time when we are relying too much on deep learning, but as you were, I think, alluding before we started recording that we need to have these big annotator sets to make things happen. But you might not have such big data sets in medical. Do you think bringing geometry and some of these, let's say, almost forgotten knowledge about the model-based approaches into the deep learning might actually solve some of the problems that we see? Yes, definitely. My view is one of an engineer and a pragmatist in the sense that what will work to help you solve the problem would be fine. I do admit that at the beginning of the deep learning approach, there was a certain rejection because we had we spent so much time designing these rules and features and then comes a system and boom, recognizes digits Uh, better than anything else, and you don't even know why it's recognizing the digits. So there was somewhat of a frustrating part, and I recognize that we had some resistance to that, as many of my other colleagues that Some of them, without quoting names, would say that uh, deep learning encourages ignorance. Nowadays, it's very clear that those are very useful tools, but nothing comes for free. Nothing. There is one axiom, and The one axiom is that there's no free lunch. So obviously, deep learning is not free lunch in the sense that it comes at the, at the expense of something or it has to shift this work. So even in deep learning, you understand that if you do wrong the modeling, you end up requiring either not making it work at all or requiring so much data to train the system that it's not realistic. So you will find that even especially in our field in which annotated data is so hard to get by and we have to work with very few data, annotated data sets. You have to be smart about modeling. You have to be careful about how you model, how do you formulate your problem. Even if you have a deep learning engine, you still need to build a car around that engine because the engine doesn't go by itself, not even to the closet supermarket. It needs a whole infrastructure 
And what do you feel to it? The garbage in, garbage out is another axiom that remains true. So there is a thinking required. And some of these hybrid tools or hybrid combinations, or even the way you prepare the data for network can benefit a lot from uh, having some of the old fashioned and new geometry based tools. Because in the end, you feed the right thing in the appropriate way to a deep network, it's going to do the right thing with little data relatively. And you're going to get better results because it finds correlations that the human brain is not capable of doing. And this is really where we see the, the jump. All right. So, yeah, that makes sense because, yeah, where you already have an idea of what works, why just throwing away that knowledge completely? You can still bring that up and then make the job of deep learning relatively easier, uh, so to say. Um, so I guess we are coming towards the end of the podcast. And so last year in Peru, the Mikai was supposed to be there. You were co-general chair, and then we had a virtual Mikai. This year, it was supposed to be Strasbourg. We were very excited from Darmstadt. We can take a train and go there. And of course not. So. Now, again, we are doing a virtual Mikai. So, like, are you excited? Are you disappointed? Uh, what's your feeling? Well, this was uh, challenging. I would uh, use the terminology that I learned back in my days of IBM. You never have a problem. You either have a challenge or an opportunity. And in fact, this is what happened. It was very painful for me and Daniel Rocasiano to not be able to organize this in Peru because it was a dream for us, especially for me to bring back this first time in Latin America, to have parts of it in Spanish. Uh, it was very significant for me personally, but of course the reality uh, always teaches you things and we managed with a great team to pull this through. We had hopes, especially when the vaccines start coming in, that this would be over, but we had to make a very hard decision towards the end of May of this year because we saw that it was uneven and in the end, the global world is global. You cannot hide anymore. And the difficulties in different countries, we understood that, that even a virtual a hybrid meeting was not possible. And this is how uh, Professor Caroline Ser and her team also did a great job at putting this together. You will see that the program is very exciting. There is a new Clinicai Day, which is first for Mikai, in which there are more physicians coming. Uh, the number of workshops and student activities has increased. So overall, it's really a very exciting and right time to be there. We also uh, work very hard at the Mikai Society to have make people feel, especially students and early career, that this is their professional home. Their scientific and professional home. They can work, they finish their PhD, they move from countries or different worlds, but their professional and scientific home is Mikai. And this is what we're working for with a team of very dedicated people. I think, especially during this whole pandemic situation, we've all made new experiences with digital conference formats, with different ways of organizing things digitally. So, how would you say after the pandemic will be over at some point, hopefully with more people being vaccinated, uh, infection numbers dropping at some point? 
What lessons would you think can be learned from the pandemic for future Mikai conferences and maybe how will future Mikai conferences look like post-pandemic? Okay, so we certainly have uh, learned some useful lessons from that. Uh, the pandemic has accelerated the acceptance and the development of uh, virtual tools, which uh, has a very positive uh, side of it. You were able to attend conferences or talks throughout the year, which you have uh, 200 people that could never come for one hour to listen to one person. Of course, it's not exactly the same, but at least some of the scientific part of it. The human part is the part which is difficult. In the end, research is not just about the scientific and professional topics. When you go out with your friends or colleagues or meet somebody and they say something and you start discussing things to get the feel of what the research is, I have not found a good way of doing that by Zoom or virtually because you get tired very quickly and it's not possible to do that. So I think uh, people understand and value this aspect. So there's, I hope, always going to be an in-person component precisely because of that part. And this could be going together with some of the benefits of the remote or virtual aspects of it. So in my mind, again, coming back to the hybrid approach and optimization, because this is what all engineers know how to do, is what would be the right balance between the things at the right time. So I think we definitely are going to keep components of that. For example, year-long activities with uh, talks and uh, special sessions organized so that people don't have to wait for the conference to be updated or hear about something. But also keep, very importantly, the in-person component, whether it be the workshops or other aspects, which give room to this informal meeting, which is very hard to quantify and to say. I mean, it has happened in many cases that new collaborations for grants, ideas, come out of something which cannot be easily done virtually. And this is, I think... We all agree, at least in the discussions we've had in the board and the feedback we've gotten from the membership, is that it is important to keep an in-person component and also get the benefits from the virtual one. So, of course, you want both cakes and uh, also eat both of them too. All right. So, on that very high note of taking the best of both worlds, I thank you again, Leo, for this wonderful, wonderful hour-long discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Like you, we are all looking forward to Mikai 21. Probably when this episode is aired, the Mikai will already be done, but it will be still like in your voice, we'll still hear the excitement of a new edition of Mikai. On this note, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye and have a nice day. Thank you very much and have a nice day.